Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Um, yeah, we're here in Boulder. It's a little snowy. We actually just had a couple llamas walk by. It's pretty exciting times. And a goat and a horse. We've got the whole menagerie out here. <laughs> a menagerie? Oh, man. man, we are stepping up the vocab. That must be like, there must be coffee running through your veins. Um, so this is episode 29, which is going to be the Adrian Beltre episode. Uh, famous baseball player. So many great things to talk about with Adrian Beltre. Um, he, my favorite quote about him is that he's a grown man with a kid's soul. Um, but what's coolest about that to me is that when he first came up, when he was 18 years old, so he came up as a superstar young kid, um, he wasn't like that at all. He hit his first major league hit and got to second base and didn't even break a smile. Um, and it kind of coincided with when his performance wasn't that great either. And, you know, kind of what we're going to get into a lot in this episode is like that play element. And as he embraced that, he also found his stride as a baseball player. I love that. Well, this is also, I haven't done a lot of baseball reading, so I love reading <laughs> about a lot of sports. Baseball, I should read more about baseball. The statistics in it are great. It's fun to read about. But as I was reading about Adrian Beltre, I just, can't, there were so many jokes. I can't, I don't understand how in baseball, it's like normal to say things like he makes plays in the hole he's the greatest of all time at third base i was like having an urban dictionary field day as i was listening to all this so you were you were away doing like the busy adrian belcher statistics and i was just laughing in my corner those are kind of the same things right greatest of all time at third base and making plays in the hole well what's interesting though is the third base element is actually relevant because the fact that a lot of like top fielders in baseball come from shortstop, come from first base. It's rare to see or a fielder field, like yeah. this. It's rare to see a fielder like this at third base. And he did it with such flair. Yeah. So I saw something saying that um, as he was like getting like more advanced in his career, the traditional method of playing third base is to like flow through third base again. Such yeah. a great, there's so many laughs there. <laughs> How to flow through third but base. He was like, no, I'm going to play my way. And he had this way of just like stopping, pivoting and releasing as he threw. And he just like, he knew himself. He held true to that. And I was like, this is super cool. The moral of the story, always stop at third base, take your time, regroup. pivot, release. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, statistically, what's really fascinating about Adrian Beltre is he was a very good hitter, but not great. And so as he was developing, people didn't really understand his brilliance. It wasn't until defensive metrics, which are very advanced, more new agey metrics came into play, that people started to understand that, no, he wasn't just very good. He's one of the best of all time. And it all comes back to fielding. So once you start adding in his fielding, he's the second best third baseman of all time by these metrics, the 11th best fielder at any position of all time. Um, once you start adding in these metrics, he goes from being very good, cusp of Hall of Fame, to you know one of the greatest players that we'll ever see. And it kind of gets back to what you're measuring determines what you value. Um, and we weren't measuring his defense outside of the eye test for so long. And as soon as we went from the eye test to statistics, it turned into, oh yeah, this guy's a freaking incredible third baseman um, with all this ability. And it gets back to, you know, when you're just determining your own self, like careful about what you're measuring. Sometimes you're not taking it all into account. Almost never you're taking it all into account because baseball people, analytics spend you know, entire careers on this stuff. And it took them uh, time to find this. So also, holy crap, his career. So you talked about the fact that he signed, I believe he signed with the Dodgers at age 16. That is yeah. young. I'm thinking back to myself as a 16 year old. And I was like, I was not ready to sign with the Dodgers. <laughs> I was not ready to play professional baseball. And then he was in the major leagues by age 20, retired at 38 or 39. That is a long career. And I love the fact that you talked about the play and joy yeah. that he had, but he was so well known for the fundamentals, like honing in those fundamentals. And I feel like the fact that he worked so hard in the fundamentals enabled him to almost like have that sense of play and joy because he was so grounded in what he was doing that he was able to like that became second nature and like play and joy kind of came at the forefront yeah as he was as he was getting older almost all the stories written about him were just about how he brought 
you know, just this play element to everything. Like there's something about he wouldn't like, he didn't like his head being touched. And so he made it into this big joke. Um, or when there was a pop fly, him and Elvis Andrews, who's happened to be a great fielder at shortstop would play these games, almost like the Harlem Globetrotters. Actually, no, he said, I saw a quote in this. He was like, it was not the Harlem Globetrotters. We were way more serious. It was oh. like, they're putting on a play. He was like, we were doing it for real. I, oh, I, I, love I, thought that. I respected that so much. A maestro at third base, as we all can aspire to on the diamond and off. Um, and then the next thing I wanted to mention real quick, uh, kind of related was the Smartless podcast, this amazing new newish podcast had James Corden on. James Corden, if you don't know, he's a late night host. He's been in a bunch of musicals, famous. Uh, he's one of the hardest pe working people in Hollywood. Um, he had some great quotes on there. And I just want to highlight this one, this one quote, and we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit. So James Corden said, joy is the key. If you start every day thinking about how this can be a joyful environment, you'll find the way. I love that quote. And also, I think for me, like sometimes I wake up in the morning and the first thing I think about is the fact that I have 82 million things yeah. to do. Actually, the first thing I think about is Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And then the fact that I have like 82, 82 million, million things to do. kernels of Cinnamon Toast Crunch to eat. Ahead in my day. But I think for me, I really embrace the idea of like having a joyful day no matter what is going on in life. Because if I'm going to wait for a day that's a little bit more convenient for joy, yeah. it's never going to happen. And thinking about it, it's like almost not trying to hit this like perfect joy VO2 workout and VO2 max workout, but just like embracing like a little joy 15 minute shakeout in my life here yeah. and there. One foot in front of the other with joy. I mean, you know, we're not always able to find joy, that's for sure. Like our brain chemistry isn't there. But viewing it as a valid goal, like is something that can be found even in things that don't feel joyous. Like I, I don't know, if if joy is reserved for like trips to the beach or uh excursions at third base or whatever you want to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just becomes like life becomes a drag. I, I think about that all the time because, you know, when we started coaching, like it's the most joyous thing in the world. And then as you do grow, it can be like, okay, I have to finish this to-do list. And we see this with coaches we help start all the time. And it's like, no, each log is this joyous gift that you get to open and trying to constantly remind can be really tough, but it applies to everything. It applies to Excel spreadsheets just as much as it applies to training. Logs. And keeping it simple, like, you know, we don't need this like eight point marketing plan for joy. Yeah. Just like find like the little simple things during the day. And I feel like it makes a big difference. I'm still working on that myself, but it's something that this. Oh, coach, I think it's a lifetime process, oh, for sure, right? For like, sure. It's something that like is at the forefront of my like thoughts when I wake up in the morning. Yeah. I mean, James Corden was talking about how a lot of the people on his set would call him, you know, sometimes he can be a pretentious bitch as we all can. Um, the point is to view this as a valid goal, which gets to the, the next quote, uh, something from James Corden's dad. You should never rate your opinion of yourself by the metric of the joyless. I freaking love this. But I also think it could apply to happiness too. So I think I've heard recently there's like, I think there's sometimes a pushback against happiness. So people yeah. feeling like happiness and happiness, not all the time. We've talked about this before. Like life is complex. You're never going to be happy all the time. But a pushback against the idea of happiness as a valid goal. And it's like, no, happiness is freaking amazing and embrace that. Oh yeah, that's, I honestly think that's kind of what it's all about. And I mean, Neil Brennan, when he was talking about depression was like, people that don't view happiness as a valid goal, like might not never have experienced it even, or might not experience Which it Which gives me great empathy for them. Oh yeah, I mean, so much empathy. It's like all of this stuff is so hard because it ties into our brain chemistries and our backgrounds and all this stuff. And all we can do in the context of that is try. It's just put one foot in front of the other and give ourselves a chance. We might not reach it ever. We might not reach it, you know, it might be once a month or you might be James Corden and be able to reach it much more consistently. The whole time though, you need to be really careful because there are people out there that will be like, 
you know, this, this perspective is too simple or it's not honest or whatever. And what James Corden is getting at with that quote is that, you know, the joyless are not the people you, you need to appeal to, because if you're appealing to the joyless, you're not creating joy. This makes me think about something an athlete wrote in one of their training logs. And they said, you know, the benefit of COVID-19 is that I only have to see the people I want to see. Yeah. And I feel like this applies to joy. It's like only see the people that bring you joy, you know, as, as much as you can. Sometimes you got to see your random uncle at Thanksgiving dinner, but it's like, you know, really just make a, a choice to see people who bring you that joy, who, who make you like feel uplifted. And you can find fun even in the people that may not, you know, agree with you that like understand their plight and also understand that there's a little bit of humor to be found even in the people that uh, might not find humor in your style, um, which gets to the next James Corden quote. Meryl Streep is the epitome of what everyone sh should seek to be on set. She says, or his perspective on her is that she is going to take the work incredibly seriously, but she'll never take herself seriously, even for a second. Um, and then follows up. What we do is play dress up and put on a show. Shoot, we should have some hats here for this podcast. Yeah. Get some like fancy hats, get some, some dress up going. Oh, it's totally what we do is we're playing dress up and putting on a show. And I think almost everyone, that's kind of what life is, is, you know, I mean, we're trying to present these people that know what we're talking about. We have no fucking clue what we're talking about. Um, and and that, that applies almost everyone, you know, the imposter syndrome, all that stuff. Like we're all just playing a little bit of dress up. But I think the biggest challenge for me is, is I, I have several work situations where no one else is playing dress yeah. up and it feels very hard to play dress up. I'm like, how do I bring in like pearls and heels and a crazy hat to this research paper? I'm trying yeah. to write. And it, I mean, when you're in it, it's so hard to see. And then when you're outside of it, it's so much easier. So I remember in law school, for example, um, there's law journals, which you might've heard of. Um, it, Outside, it's like, oh, student journals, whatever. In law school, it is the most serious thing in the law profession. Um, and so I was an editor. I was the editor my third year. And I remember we were preparing to submit and people were just freaking out about it. Um, and they were freaking out because of one little thing. The font that we were using, you couldn't see whether the periods at the end of sentences were in italics or not. Sound the alarm. Yeah, yeah. Because there are some times that your period needs to be in italics in footnotes and sometimes when it doesn't. So people were skimming at six point font to see whether periods were in italics. There are probably lawyers reading this right now that are having flashbacks and like blacking out. Um, and you know, what, I, what I said is just, who cares? Who cares? I mean, great. It matters. Fine. But like, if you find joy in this, great. Otherwise, we're playing. This is just dress up. Let's have as much fun as we can. Let's play. Let's not worry about the periods. It's uh, funny because the period, I feel like in law, is the semicolon equivalent in coding or data science because I'm having this visceral response oh no. to punctuation marks to semicolons. Because in, in semicolons, like you miss a semicolon in code and you may spend 20 minutes trying to figure <laughs> out what the heck is wrong with your code only to realize it's a semicolon. But I feel like for me, I have a very similar thing. Like, like coding research papers, all these things feel very self-serious in the moment. It's yeah. like how, when you're staring at 200 lines of code, how is that not self-serious? Like, where is the dress up? Where is the play in that? And I think for me recently, I've just tried to find humor in it. Like, yeah. I think for me, humor is that thing that I just like keep coming back to. But I feel like as I've tried to find humor, I've started to understand things a little bit better too. Even if I'm just making humor, like random jokes to you yeah. or Addy Dog or myself or posting them on Instagram stories and it disappears in 24 hours. Yeah. But I just, I have found that humor as the element of dress up well, is something and helpful. The hard part about self-seriousness is like all of this stuff is easy to say when you're established, you know, and James Corden would acknowledge this or, you know, or us as white people or me as a man, you know, like all of it is much easier from a position of, you know, where society is bending towards you a little bit. It's harder for a woman. It's way harder for minority people and black people and everything. Um, and so, you know, yeah, you need to, you need to take your work seriously, but as much as you can in the context of a, the complex world, try to find play. And that's the, how we're going to end the intro is just the importance of play in all we do. So 
you know, the podcast is called for the end of the year, just to summarize it, you know, some work, all play. And the reason is that everything we do becomes work eventually, even, even like tooling around at third base. I was going to make a third base joke. <laughs> you stole it. I was sitting here this entire time you were talking. I usually I listen to you really well and I couldn't listen. Oh, I was yeah. just thinking of third base. Jokes. Oh my God. Well, you know, it gets back to sex. We're not talking, this isn't the sex episode, but we will have one coming, but that, yeah, we talk about coming. Um, but yeah, I mean, you talk about sex all the time and like, you know, in logs and stuff, you'll hear people talk about it. And it often becomes this stressful work-like thing um, because there's pressures, there's societal pressures, there's way we were raised, there's partner pressures, there's all this stuff. And it's like, oh my gosh, that is so tough on someone. And and we, we've been, I've been fortunate to coach a sex therapist who's like, yes, play is what it's all about. It is play with you know, someone else, it is play with yourself. If you're into that sort of thing, um, it's, it's play in all these different ways. And so let's try to emphasize play. I love this conversation. So we do sparse outlining for this yeah, podcast yeah. and that was nowhere on the outline. And I, I love it. So thank you for bringing a little bit of unexpected play into this. All right, let's get to the main topic. That was not the main topic. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on, we'll touch on all this stuff a little bit more. Um, so this is from listener MH. And a very brief summary of her question is, I thought it'd be fun if you did a verbal coach's year interview, much like the Strava or Spotify wrap up. I've, I love the Spotify wrap ups when it yeah. tells you you've listened to, you know, WAP 45 times in actually not, 45 times in one day, probably. Yeah. WAP was my fourth top song. I was surprised it wasn't my first. I think it's because it was, came a little bit later in the year. And uh, we'll get into a little bit about our, our love of WAP later. Um, but first, we wanted to start with one training takeaway. We're going to get through seven takeaways in this in this podcast. And the takeaways are in no apparent order. Oh, yes. we just, so we, when we did this podcast outline, we just kind of went free for all and just wrote down things that stood out to us from this year, but definitely in no apparent order. Yeah, yeah. That'll become apparent why uh, as we talk about more serious topics. So let's start with the one major training topic is that this was the year with an emphasis on base training. Um, you know, whether we were able to race or not, this year really required all athletes to take a step back and emphasize that element. Sometimes that included like pure base running or rest or other things. I've often seen yeah. it to include a, a focus on cross training. So yeah. we have sold more Zwift subscriptions this yeah. year than I think we've sold anything else. And seeing athletes embrace the like, you know, alternative approaches to training. And I think that's something that's fun. It develops these new, like, you know, newfound strengths, newfound skills, but also like going forward in 2021, 2022, 2023, when you have to take two or three days off due to injury, you now have this new and you're embracing your athleticism. Exactly. Yeah, like today, Megan rode up a big mountain on the in the virtual world of Zwift, and I got a text from her, and she's like, "I did a U-turn at one point, which you know these climbs are really hard." And then she was like, "But I said." all caps, not today, <laughs> which to reference area from Game of Thrones, which I thought was amazing. Yeah. I had a 14, 14 second turnaround. And then I was like, not today it's happening. I have made a resolution. Anytime I go up Alp to Swift, I am finishing Alp to Swift. Even if, it, <laughs> even if it requires you turn. It's good to hear from me because I, I turned around very early yesterday doing the same but thing. But it's been fun. I think, you know, as we've seen more athletes embracing cross training, I've actually seen people I know in the virtual world. And it's just, it's, it's very cool to see athletes like embracing biking, embracing mountain biking, like finding these like ski mountaineering, whatever it may be, finding these new skills. Easy running hiking, like all these things go into the athletic nature. And it gets back to the importance of how the aerobic develop system develops over many years. Um, there's one incredible study on this uh, via Paula Radcliffe, and they did physiological testing on her every year from when she was a kid up through when she was retiring and running. Um, and what they found is that her VO2 max when she was 18 peaked. It was as high as it ever got. Then it went down slightly over the years. Meanwhile, her speed went up 15%. So her aerobic system eroded at the very top end, eroded just slightly, which is something we're all facing with age. But 
her aerobic general ability, like her overall aerobic ability at lower levels increased massively, even into her forties. And that really gets to, you know, how age can be a benefit because your aerobic system has more time to adapt. Look at Sarah Hall running 220 marathons at 37. That was remarkable. Yeah. And we're seeing that all the time now with people embracing the aerobic elements And 2020 is that in a nutshell for a lot of different people. And I've seen athletes embracing this through great personal strife. So I've seen athletes in 2020 has been, not been easy yeah. in terms of getting out the door and logging miles, like whether that's changes in childcare structure or changes in work structure, just increased stress or family stress or whatever it may be. I'm seeing athletes like get out the door to put in these aerobic miles and keep the consistency rolling. And that's been something that's, I mean, athletes should draw confidence on that for years to come. The fact that you can be resilient in 2020, like, gosh, you can do anything in 2021, 2022. And there's an emphasis, I think, for a lot of athletes thinking that you need to go hard to develop yourself, much like third base that we were talking about earlier, but that's not the way it works at all. Um, you know, the body develops from these very gentle nudges and involves from, from this, you know, overall approach to development that's angiogenesis, like the development of capillaries, recruitment of slow twitch muscle fibers, not pushing up against aerobic threshold in your thresholds all the time. Like you can just back off a, a minute per mile and you're probably going to get more from that run. And that's something to emphasize as we're moving forward. It's that this, this foundational element that we're doing now can be something that goes into our running and our athletics and our whole lives throughout the rest of our lives to feed into longer careers. And I think that's the thing is, is like athletes taking a step back, whether it's through aerobic building or down weeks or off seasons in 2020, like that just feeds into the longevity of yourself as an athlete. I think that's really cool. Yeah. So 2020 might've felt like an interminable year, but like there's so much amazingness in the future athletically. And I think the big reason is that we like as a, as a whole, stepped away a little bit from being like, okay, I need to hammer myself to be ready for this thing because and there I wasn't think, really anything to I be ready for. real quick, as the last point on this topic is that the process of stepping away yeah. also allowed athletes to redevelop their why. Like without having to train consistently for races, athletes are having to get out the door now for internally structured whys. And yeah. I think that's something that's that's so cool and something that will power like fun builds and fun training for years to come. 2021 is going to be bonkers. I'm so excited to see what everyone does. Which leads us to topic number two or point number two, I guess, in this countdown. Point number two is the fact that there is so much hope, optimism, and belief rolling into 2021. Holy cow. It's so cool to end this 2020 year on this like hope and optimism. Yeah. I mean, we we talked about the vaccines the other day and the science that went into that. um, And I think that that's really applying across the board. Yeah. I think like you see election results. I think the election results this year are a confirmation that our society largely, I mean, largely believes in science. And I think that this is something that's going to be a trend for years. Or at least the worst fears weren't confirmed that a lot of people felt and held and were really holding into their, their souls all year is that worry about that. I mean, talk about the scientific discovery that went into the COVID vaccine, but also on top of that too, it's like this elevation. So I've seen more scientific journals allow open access to their publications, allowing people to access like the primary sources of science, allowing people to dig into like the true, like nitty gritty of the scientific details and seeing people feel empowered to do that. To me, that inspires a ton of hope in the process of like scientific development. And you know, what I would say is you are a scientist. If you are listening to this, I think that there's sometimes an emphasis on like, are you a doctor like Megan is or a PhD like Megan is or all these other things. And what Megan would say is like, no, it's about curiosity. It's about finding that, you know, wanting to find answers and seek them. So don't make shit up like you see on social media a lot, like, you know, learn from experts, but also don't sell yourself short. You can learn all this stuff. I mean, that's where, you know, my coaching came from initially was Megan being like, David, you have all the tools to to present yourself this way. And it, it kind of gets back to, uh, you know, some stuff with like, optimism and and belief in yourself and all that in general. Well, I think for me, the biggest thing we talked about 
we just talked about aging and, yeah. and training. Well, I think for me, like aging in the context of life, like there are just so many things I want to learn. And I think yeah. 2020 has opened my eyes to the fact, but just because there's been, you know, all these fascinating political movements, social movements, we'll touch on those in, in, um, topics coming up, but it's like, that has just opened my eyes to the need to learn, the need to educate myself, the need to like, you know, just continue reading. And yeah. I'm so excited about that. And being well-rounded and, and like trying to read everything you can and be open-minded to all this stuff. That's where the beauty is. And it, and it kind of brings up what I wanted to talk about with the show Ted Lasso, which we've mentioned before, but what's so beautiful about it is it's this full openness embodied in this character of, you know, like being curious, not judgmental of celebrating the accomplishments of others, of finding bravery by going into the unknown, um, all this other stuff. And, and I think what's, what's the essential point I wanted to mention there is a quote from that about where Ted Lasso, the coach is saying, be the goldfish that you need to have a very short memory on these things because otherwise you're going to tear yourself down with self-judgment. You're going to only stay on the conveyor belt of life, whatever that means for you, because there's this fear that like, if you believe, if you go for it, you're going to fail. And the answer is, heck yeah, you're going to fail. You need to be able to move on from that. You're going to need to like keep going. I love that. And I think like we put the belief sign in our bathroom yeah. and I literally, so I go to the bathroom every morning, of course, <laughs> and I touch the belief sign because it's like, it's, it's something that like starts my day. And I think like what I learned from Ted Lasso is the process that it's like, it's not just like waking up and deciding you're going to believe for the rest of your life. It's like, again, it's like, it's the decision of like embracing joy or embracing belief. And then it's, it's a valid it's a decision goal. every morning. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, and then you go to the bathroom 172 <laughs> more times throughout the day. Megan actually has one of the smallest, like actually diagnosed. Well, yeah. So I was the, the ultrasound model for my med school class. And I was like laying there with so, as 80 people watching. And it's broadcast like, onto, the, uh, onto the screen. Yeah, I was hoping. I was like, I better not be pregnant on this. But, <laughs> but what they did find was like, you have a pediatric sized bladder. I was like, yeah, I, they, I am sure of that. They announced that to the entire class, which I thought was incredible. Um, and, you know, it kind of gets to like how belief applies in life. And the, the story I wanted to end on this post was, um, well, actually, very briefly, the trip that we did up. Uh, on Christmas Eve, where we were just jamming out to a Judah and the Lion song that was, um, I entrained my youth for no student jacket. We played that probably 35 times on our Christmas day. And I, that song just resonated to me so much because it's the fact that like, the process of like not treating your youth is an active decision that just has to happen over and over again. And I think there's a lot of resistance to that. Like, you know, I've seen resistance to that from like families, from bosses, yeah. from whoever. Even our be. own brains. Yeah, like, exactly. Right? Yeah, because it's not like the traditional thing. And I just loved the the impact of that song, like the lyrics of the song and just how it's presented. Yeah, and even if you, you know, suit and jacket is just a metaphor. Like what it means is that life doesn't have to be this series of trade-offs where you sell out your principles and beliefs and optimism and hope for, you know, some to be some cog in some machine. You know, that doesn't mean you can't be a big law firm lawyer. It just means that you can still find that along the way, um, which ends in the story I wanted to tell, which was the, is the website Defector. So Deadspin, um, an old sports blog, had always been my favorite website. It's where, honestly, I kind of learned to write from that website when I was in high school and college. Um, and I, you know, amazing writers across the board um, writing about every topic you could think of. Um, long story short, they were the website was bought by a hedge fund after being sued and all this other stuff. And the hedge fund uh, managers issued this edict of stick to sports. Um, and of course, the writers did not stick to sports. They stood up for what they believe in. Just writing about injustice, writing about politics, writing about sports, writing about life, because that's what sports are. That's why we talk about sports so much. And what I love about this is that they did that. So they had 
you know, articles about Black Lives Matter. They had articles about like deep political movements right alongside articles about like they would literally have Fart an article jokes. about yeah. like third base yeah. and like, you know, all of these different things. And I just think it was so cool the way that they combined that. But I think it gave them like added credibility. The fact that they were handling what they were doing with such playfulness, but also seriousness. I think it's like the integration of itself. Is but beautiful. what happens? Uh, getting back to James Corden quote about don't judge yourself by the metrics of the joyless. Um, the editor in chief had to re- was forced to resign, and then all of the writers uh, resigned on mass and within a day or two. On mass, hopefully that's how you pronounce it. I'm not exactly sure. Um, within a day or two, with nothing to fall back on, and this isn't the type of thing in writing or journalism where there is our options. They were doing this out of their you know their moral clarity about what they stood for about the belief that they had in themselves and also optimism for the future. Um, so flash forward nine months or a year later, they start this website defector. Um, and when they're starting the website defector, they're, they're cut down from all different, all different angles. They're told that it's not going to work all these different things. They just published their hundred day posts where they're making millions of dollars in revenue and all these different things. And they are most certainly not sticking to sports. Um, and so, you know, the, the message I want to end with is do not stick to sports, whatever that means in your life, that you are not just a lawyer. You are not just a doctor. You are not just a coach. You are a whole person and you have a responsibility to talk about everything. And you not only responsibility, but like it's what it's all about. I love that point. But I also think it creates this like interesting safety net against failure because when you embrace the elements that make you, you know, you outside of being an athlete, outside of being a lawyer, outside of being a doctor, whatever it may be, it's like that allows you to, I mean, that allows you to take chances and take risks because you have yeah. these other like identities as a safety net. And I think that's so cool. Okay. On, on not sticking to sports topic three, or uh, which is black lives matter. Um, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the course of this podcast, but essentially the, the, what we want to talk about here is in affirming and amplifying black voices in perspective and doing that for decades and decades and, and decades centuries and in the future. Yeah, this because is I so, think this yeah. is not just a trending hashtag. This is something that needs to be at the forefront of our minds for forever. Yeah. It's so baked into the very fabric of society. Um, you know, the, the quote that I've heard from Chris Rock mention a lot, the statistic is that in, in Boston, the average net worth uh, or the median net worth of a black family is $8 and the median net worth of a white family is $160,000. And that is so obviously tied to slavery and racism, even if it doesn't feel like it to people in their guts that might not see this on a day-to-day basis. Um, and it's something that we all need to remember is that th- that, sa- that metric is so obvious, but the same principles probably apply in every field. I was going to say, I, I probably see elements of racism implicitly or explicitly in every single day of research that I do, like yeah. diving into research study. It's, you see it. Yesterday, I saw one, actually. It was in the, the publication in the journal. It's called Sleep in all oh, capital letters. That's a great name for a journal. <laughs> um, but essentially, this is fascinating. Like I feel like in... In modern society, we're really embracing machine learning and algorithms and AI. And a lot of these algorithms aren't designed to handle race. Like they're created by white men who, you know, don't apply these fundamental issues of race to the algorithms themselves. And I saw this fascinating example, and it actually relates to running, is you know, the green light that's called the PPG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like the in plasma, the watch. plasmography green light light used in the watches for heart rate monitoring. That light actually hasn't been like specifically tested in darker skin tones. And so people with darker skin tones, the algorithm isn't designed 
sign. So the light scatters um, in a different way sometimes for darker skin tones. And that makes the algorithms less relevant for um, for black people, for oh people with darker skin tones. And, you know, that that research has been overlooked for decades. And it's just it's it's fascinating to me, like just the amount of bias that we we see in algorithms yeah. and machine learning and all of these different things. And it's probably everything. And, you know, I know that in AI and machine learning in general, that's becoming more and more of an issue. Um, and you know, we're two lily white people up here talking. So, you know, uh, I actually wanted to to bring up uh, the Mark Twain Prize presentation. It was amazing this year. Watch it on Netflix. It was going to Dave Chappelle, um, who's like a legend uh, in on topics of race and everything else. Um, but during the during the presentation, there were three comedians on the stage talking about uh, you know Dave Chappelle's lasting legacy. Uh, the first was Kenan Thompson, Saturday Night Live legend, uh, black man that's like done everything you could ever imagine was amazing. Uh, Michael Che, co-writer of, uh, co-head writer of Saturday Night Live, another amazing black comedian, um, amazing, uh, you know, tribute to Dave Chappelle. And then the final one, it comes to Colin Jost. Amazing hair, I might add. Amazing hair, very, very white. Um, and he gets up there at the Mark Twain Prize celebrating Dave Chappelle. And he, he pauses for a second and says, and I'm here to celebrate Mark Twain. And then the crowd goes wild and, and, and then Colin just throws it back to, you know, the black comedians to, to, to finish up. And the point isn't that white people don't have something to say. The point is that before we start talking, let's try to raise up black perspectives. That means listening. That means really understanding that the way we understand things and, and think about things is not reality. You know, yes, we can learn and we can develop that, but not to view it through the pr prism of our own experience as much as possible. And that's something we're trying to do every day in our own lives and, and and tell us what, how we can. I think for me, something that I've conceptualized this year is the differentiation between passive and active uh, participation. So for me, like being an anti-racist takes active participation. It takes like educating yourself, speaking out, like committing to this. And I think that that's something that's been at the top of my radar this year and something that I'm going to continue to take forward. Yeah, and and 20, it's been really helpful. And that's what 2020, I think, showed us all is that you know, it looks different in all the context of all of our lives. Yes, it might be walk, marching in the streets sometimes, and it probably should be, but it can be the smallest actions in all we do, that smallest active actions. Um, and it's just a requirement to rectify like centuries of, of hate and discrimination. Um, and the final, the final thing, getting back to humor about this um, topic through Dave Chappelle is um, his sketch about Clayton Bigsby, uh, the blind white supremacist played by black man Dave Chappelle. And so the idea of Clayton Bigsby is it really points out the illogical, idiotic nature of racism in the first place. Um, and maybe the funniest part of it all is that the people, the other, the other white supremacists are too nice to tell him that he is a black man. Um, and the idea being that behind these hateful views, hopefully there is goodness in these people that experience this and goodness in us all, you know, because we all might have, have tendencies implicit and explicit that are not um, purely good and to, to appeal to the goodness, but at the same time to actively root out all of the evil, all of that idiotic racism that is a part of society as a whole. And so Black Lives Matter is our topic three. And topic four. So the topic four actually comes from last night. I opened a gift from Mary Johnson, who is a strength and lift coach and running coach. She's awesome. But she sent me this shirt that said the future is female coaches. Uh, it was made from backline. And I love that shirt. I love that concept. I love the message. And I think the fact actually 2020, we've seen the women supporting other women movement, which yeah. I think has been fundamentally important, though. I will add a, a comment on this. So in the women supporting women movement, there was this push on Instagram to post a black and white kind of glamour shot 
thought of yeah. yourself in the process. And I thought it was interesting. It was like, we are getting to this point of women supporting women, but we're almost like halfway or three quarters of the way there because the way that we're showing that we're doing this is posting this glamour shot, this black and white beauty shot of ourselves in the process. And I feel like it gets at the point that like, actually the fundamental importance of women supporting other women is women doing it mm. without needing to feel like this self-promotion or feel like they're getting self something in return. And I think for me, like 2020 has just really emphasized that. And point. it's so hard because when you think about the wage gap, you know, where women make 70 cents on the dollar, whatever it is, um, you know, there is this temptation. It's like, you know, get clawing your way up takes so much work that it's really hard to, to lift up at the same time. And, you know, yes, it, it, it falls a little bit on women, but mainly it falls on men um, and, and this this active participation in this process. Um, I was doing doing research yesterday for an article next week on, on napping. Uh, and in the context of that research, I went through 12 studies that had hundreds of participants and there were zero females included. And females are good at naps. I can, yeah, I can yeah. emphasize that point. And I don't give a fuck why that is, right? Like there might be justifications where they're like, well, hormonally, this is a, you know, a starting point and then we'll go to the female subjects later. But in practice, that does not happen. Those studies, those follow-up studies do not happen. And so whatever it takes, you know, women need to be included at the outset of this, this study process. But then that same principle applies to everything that we do, like, you know, lifting up women and, and, and people like, you know, it just requires this constant active participation. And how does this a part of my life today? And I think it requires active participation from people at the top. So I see yeah. this often in medicine. So women are often underrepresented in medicine at the top levels, at the dean levels, um, in the top academic positions. And I think there's often once women do get there, they've often traveled yeah. this difficult path in order to reach the top. And sometimes in, in some situations I've seen from women that they feel like that difficult path is fundamental to what brought them to the top yeah. and that other women should have to experience the same thing. And I just like, I wish that more women, like once they get to the top, can make it their mission to make the path easier for other women. And I think that's like almost even more important than academic success, than career success is paving the way for the future generation. And I think that's something that I'm really passionate about and something that I've seen more and more women embrace, but it's going to be important going forward. The future is female coaches. Let's do it, guys. Like, you know, start coaching if you're, uh, I realize I said guys there, which is like- I say that often, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. But implicitly building in though, you know, language into this process too. But like, let's do this. We got this as, as a whole, you know, as a whole community that every single female coach that is added to the coaching list is so positive and productive for everyone. Um, awesome. So topic five, um, a, a slight tone shift here. Topic five is our thankfulness for the song WAP um, from Cardi B and Men This Beg This Time. And for the song itself, not the fact that it's convenient with our acronym SWAP. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some WAP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, some Work All Play actually stands for some WAP, some wet ass blank. Um, yeah, and it's the best song ever. It's amazing in every different way. Um, but just from a general point of view, just the sex positivity of it is so beautiful because it's this ultimate acceptance of bodies and experiences and how everyone is unique. I think the other thing too is this, if you look at the history of rap, like explicit sex language is something that's often used. I mean, it's very rarely used by female rappers, but it's often used by male rappers. And I feel like the fact that Cardi B and Meg Thee Stallion did this, it's almost like they're reclaiming the same terms that have been used against women in songs by male rappers as their own and like claiming that as something that's like towards body acceptance and body positivity and sex positivity. Yeah. And I just think it's like that represents something that's really beautiful and amazing and inspiring. For and every person has totally different experiences. You know, this is their, their experience as rappers, you know, following up on what Lil' Kim done and all these other, I'm totally not well-versed in rap, but you know, the idea being that like, there is a space 
for all of these different experiences, like they are extremely like sexual, but like there's also a space for people that are asexual or anywhere else on the spectrum. Um, and, you know, I think what makes Cardi B and Megan Science so amazing is that they approach this with humor and play. The whole song is hilarious. It's hilarious. So we've spent a lot of runs talking about potential Strava titles based off of this song. We have so many of them, some of which we've actually used on Strava and some of which we're like, yeah. this should probably be something. So we would end this listing up uh, how this applies to running, how some of the lyrics apply to running. So for rest days, certified freak, six days a week as opposed to seven days a week. Really need that rest day on the Strava title. <laughs> for the long run Strava title, extra large and extra hard. Oh, I love it. That'd be a good Magnolia Road long run. <laughs> for winter running clothes, let's roll play. I'll wear a disguise. That's for those runners that you know have to go out in like the, the full face masks. That was me this morning. Rocking a workout on Strava. I don't cook, I don't clean, but let me tell you how I got this ring. I, <laughs> I use that a lot. That's that's frequented a lot of Instagram. Lots stories. of third base there. Uh, for mid-run photos, he bought a phone just for pictures, uh, which I really identify with with my, uh, my Strava photos. For running sponsorship. He got some money, then that's where I'm headed. <laughs> I feel like a big a big thing going forward too is uh, reducing the gender gap in women's sports. Yeah, much needed. This is actually a pretty serious one. We see a massive gap in how women are treated and and compensated, and that needs to change. And then the last one is for a snowy day run like today, going in dry and coming out soggy. Um, so we're gonna go into topic uh, six a little bit soggy, which is adopting dogs and love. In that the the impetus for that was Addie Dog, our dog, seeing Bailey this morning, one of her good friends. And when she saw Bailey, she squealed her head off as loud as she possibly could. And it just lasted for like 10 minutes. I don't know what 2020 is the year of, but I feel like it's the year of the dog. Yeah. So I've seen, there are so many different publications related to the COVID-19 pandemic, but I saw one this morning on human dog relationships and how they've evolved during COVID. And there's like, it really interesting. There was a, in the introduction. There was this point about human animal interactions may even improve peer to peer social <laughs> relationships. And I was like, "Holy cow!" So my interaction with Addy Dog may make me better at parties. And I'm like, I don't know if I've no chance. Science. I, I always regress to the mean at parties. That makes me feel so skeptical of science. I take back all the hopefulness about science. There's no chance that being with Addy will make me better. But keeping with the hope vibe of 2020, shelter adoption rates are nearly doubling um, in many places. LA, New York City, seeing that. Um, also, a reduction in abandonment. So often when dogs are adopted from the shelter, there's there tends to be sometimes a high rate of abandonment associated with that. That's also reducing too. It's funny. I saw an article talking about, this was in September, yeah. talking about people who wanted dogs for Christmas and saying that there was this run on puppies. And it sounded exactly like the terminology used in the run on PlayStation, the run on Xbox. <laughs> it was so funny, uh, but just so cool to see people embracing like a little bit of love and furry pets in their life. And whether you have dogs or even like dogs or not, the reason that we want to broaden it out is because of the love that dogs embody and that we can all do that a little bit in our lives. Like, and that should be the goal moving forward is that I think we have really latched on to dogs and pets this year because it's a little bit of certainty in all of the uncertain mess that is the world, right? Like Addie will always love us. Addie will always love Bailey. Um, and, and that's kind of how it feels with animals. Um, but like we can try to bring that into our lives. The joy that James Corden was talking about, really what that is, is just this closeness, this unconditional support that doesn't just mean romantic love like I feel about Megan. It also means like how we feel about everyone and everything. Well, I think Addie is a part of our family, but I think what we've seen this year too is just a, a changing definition of what family means. Yeah. Like I think we've really, we've had we've had limitations in being able to actually see like blood family this yeah. year. And so we've just expanded our definition of family to include many of our friends. I made a joke earlier that like, I 
feel like there are four times the number of people this year that I would donate a kidney to <laughs> other years. I may not have any kidneys yeah, left. Yeah, how many kidneys do you have? I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and actually an athlete said in their training log today that they saw a pillowcase with super spreader of love. That's amazing. Also on a pillowcase, make sure you use protection in that process. Oh yeah, we're, we're going full, full, full blown on the whole uh, sex lingo today. Um, but yeah, like the idea being that love is this ultimate feeling of gratitude that we can all access and it's hard. And it's one of those things that it's not necessarily taught in society. Start by just like being okay, telling people you love them or whatever the language is from, and then building from there. And it, you know, a little bit goes a long way. Um, it, it really like starts to slow life down in a way because you're really, you're experiencing with other people. And it's something we've tried to do a lot more too in our lives. And as you're giving love to other people, make sure you give it to yourself too, yeah. which I would argue is objectively probably one of the hardest things to do on this topic of love. Awesome. And so the final topic is that mental health is health. Um, when we're talking about 2020, I think mental health has to be the main thing. Um, and it kind of gets back to this question, what is the goal of life? Um, and we're watching this show right now that is ridiculous. I heard it described, Bridgerton, I heard it described as pride and prejudice with a little bit more stairway sex. What I love about Bridgerton too is that they take these pop songs and turn them into violin quartets. Yeah. So Thank You Next came on in this like very serious violin quartet. And I just love the tongue and cheek nature of the show, but that really did it for me. Um, but yeah, so in Bridgerton, the, the main female character of the show is taking a moment to reflect where we are. We're, we're pretty early in it um, on her role as a woman in society, um, You know, which she talks about is to get married and have kids and things like that. And she's starting to realize Realize that no, actually, that is not what makes me a whole person. It's so much bigger than that. I'm not sure where the show goes. I don't really care. I don't think the show is necessarily all about philosophy. It more is about like questioning those baseline assumptions that we all have. And I think if there's anything that's 2020 has done, it has allowed us all collectively, many yeah. people to question those baseline assumptions in a way that's been healthy, in a way that's allowed people but to also talk traumatic. about journeys. Exactly. Also really yeah. traumatic. You know, like life can be set up. I mean, when you think about Megan as a doctor and me as a lawyer, you, know, you go from step to step to step to step and don't ever get a chance to look around, which in some ways is comforting. Um, and in 2020, I think for, for most people, it's this ultimate break from whatever was happening before. And it's like moving up the midlife crisis into wherever you're at in life. And I think most people went through, I mean, we've talked openly about our relationship issues for the, you know, that we had for the first time. Um, and, you know, I think we both had our own personal issues too, and along the way, and then other athletes are opening up about it as well. Um, you know, Grayson Murphy, who we love, who's on the team. She used about, the, yeah, yeah, she used the definition. She called it brain sprain. Yeah. I loved, I applauded Grayson so much for using that because like, I feel like it normalizes this physiology of what athletes are going through. Like, you know, if you had a sprained ankle, you'd objectively look at that and be yeah. like, this needs PT. And the process of like, whatever is going on with mental health is very similar to looking down and being like, oh, I have a sprained ankle, except it's so much harder for athletes to recognize. And I feel like brain sprain just gives athletes that chance to like, to fully embrace the process of like treating this from a performance standpoint, like go yeah. get PT, go get help, you know? And it's, I think it's, I was really proud of Grayson for doing that. Yeah. And so therapy, medication, all these different things that just help us get through the day. Totally cool. Let's like embrace it as a community. And I think 2020 shared that. So this big story uh, we're going to end with uh, is just that you are enough. And, and the example we have is Trent Reznor writing about writing the song hurt a beautiful song um, her, listen to him talking about it. He made tons of discordant notes in there and little subliminal messages that most people wouldn't even recognize, but um, were all designed 
to show this chaos that was within his brain when he was writing it in the early 90s. And what I love about the subliminal messages, and we actually wrote about this in our book, The Happy Runner, is the fact that everyone interprets it so differently. And he actually, so he refrained from coming out on the internet yeah. and providing like his exact meaning of it. He talks about it. He talks about it more like using metaphors and loosely. He doesn't, and he allows, you know, for people to interpret their own journey in yeah. the context of that. And so what he did, when he wrote that song, he was becoming famous in Nine Inch Nails and getting all these accolades and he wasn't happy. And this song was a reflection on that unhappiness, but also a little bit of hope for the future where, you know, he's talking about his final lyric is I would find a way, um, this subjunctive future find of a way. Um, and I think what's so beautiful about it is that almost a decade later, Johnny Cash covered the song. And Johnny Cash did it in a different way. So Johnny yeah. Cash, I mean, he died seven months later after recording the song. And it was actually filmed and recorded at the House of Cash, which the House of Cash was this museum dedicated to Johnny Cash, all of his achievements, all of his accomplishments. Yet it was close to the public because it was falling down. It was derelict. Yeah. It was old. And they filmed it in there. And it just really captured Johnny Cash grappling with the fact that like he is not all of these achievements that he had were fleeting. I mean, they were literally decaying in the house of cash. And I thought it was, it was a really powerful way to build off yeah. of this song and off of what Trent Reznor was you know, getting and, at in his initial lyrics. And that shows kind of the end that's awaiting us all in a way in the frame of this. But the beautiful thing is that Trent Reznor, after that cover came out and it became a multi-platinum song and this big thing, Trent Reznor reflected on a show that just came out on Netflix. And he was saying that he was finally able to see the beauty and brilliance of it and fully appreciate how he had grown along the way. It took that distance though. It took that separation from what he went through to write the song to fully love the song and everything it made him into. Well, I saw a quote that he said about Johnny Cash covering his song and he was like, I feel like watching the music video at first, it made me feel like he had taken my ex-girlfriend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it was like something that he had worked on for so long, but then he came to appreciate, I mean, he like truly came to appreciate that fact over time. And I think it really helped him like grapple with what he went through and like reflect on that. And so when we're going through 2020 right now, wherever you are, um, things might be amazing, in which case it's awesome and appreciate that we have so much gratitude for that um, when things are going great in our lives too. But if things aren't, if there are those discordant notes and subliminal messages that you are not enough with distance, with time, I really think that we're going to look back on this and be like, you know, I have gratitude for what that brought to me, you know? So looking into 2021. I think that the key there yeah. is the tincture of time. I yeah. think for many people, I mean, it's been traumatic and I think, you know, the tincture of time is really going to be a play here. Yeah. It's so hard to see when you're in the moment. And fortunately though, we are almost out of the moment. 2020 is almost done. We are moving into 2021 with so much hope. And so we want to finish by saying, thank you all. You are enough. And we freaking love you. Thank you for following along our podcast experiment. Yeah. It means a ton. Happy holidays. We are excited for 2021. Yeah, rate, subscribe, do whatever you else do for podcasts. We love you guys. Woohoo! Bye!